been with Standard Reason uh, since 2004. And um, yeah, it's like a it's like a dream job because I get to do what I feel like I'm gifted in, which is teaching and knowledge. And I get to do the thing that I feel like is one of the most, is a very important thing that the church needs. And that is to be able to think carefully about their faith and to persuasively and graciously share their convictions with the rest of the world. Welcome to the show today, folks. So we have a very special guest on today, Alan Schleeman. Alan is a, a public speaker. He's an author. He is with uh, Stand a Reason uh, organization. We'll put all these uh, uh, links in the description box so you can follow up and, and uh, get some more information, material, study on what he's uh, speaking about. But Alan is uh, very definite about some of the beliefs he holds and uh, speaks on into today's culture. Uh, he gives Christians kind of a leg to stand on uh, as the organization is a reason to believe or stand for that. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about our conversation. Oh, oh man, I, I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing. Um, you know, where were you born, raised? Or were you raised in a Christian home? Uh, you know, kind of how did you come to, to faith? Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, my parents actually were born in Baghdad in the country of Iraq. Um, and because we're, we're ethnically Assyrian, as in the Old Testament Assyrians that you probably have read about there, that were the sworn enemies of Israel and consequently yeah. the sworn enemies of God. Uh, so because of that, that's, that's why my family all grew up in that area. They fled, though, thankfully, um, Iraq back in the late 60s, and I was born in Chicago, where a lot of my people, the Assyrians, fled to, for whatever reason, they chose Chicago. And so I was born uh, in Chicago, lived there for a number of years, and and then have moved a ton since then, lived in Chicago, Denver, London, LA, and now I live in San Diego. And, and uh, Assyrians, as an ethnic group, have actually been, uh, for the most part, Christian for, I mean, many, many centuries now. Um, and so uh, my parents grew up as Christians, and all my relatives in, in Iraq were Christians. So we, we were a small Christian minority. So I grew up in a Christian home uh, in the States uh, because I was living with my family. And uh, uh, when I was in high school, though, I started to wrestle with questions about my convictions and began to have doubts. And I was, you know, around high school, you start to ask the question, do I really believe what I believe because my parents say so? Or is it is it a personal conviction of my own? And I began to struggle with those questions. And um, I mean, not no no fault of my parents. They, they weren't really, you know, prepared to kind of answer some of those challenges. Um, because for them, being a Christian was just, you just do that. You, you, you don't become a Muslim because you know, just because you live in Iraq, it's like, you're never going to be Muslim. You might be not a Christian, but you certainly want to become Muslim. So in their minds, it's just like, just make sure you stay Christian. So that was sort of the way they taught me to think. And, or I, maybe I they didn't taught me to think that way, but they, I, I inferred that from kind of their, their life. Anyways, all that being said, I wasn't really grounded very strongly. And so I, I, I ditched my faith in high school. And then when I came back to the States, um, I was living in in London in high school, and then I moved to Los Angeles for for college. Hmm. That's when a professor um, at a secular university, who happened to be a Christian, 
uh, introduced me to apologetics and challenged me to reconsider my faith. And um, he introduced me to a guy named J.P. Moreland, who is a philosopher uh, from Talbot Seminary in Los Angeles. And he um, had me attend some of his lectures, listen to his material, read his books. And eventually I became overwhelmed with all of the what seemed to be incredible evidence and good reason to think that Christianity was actually true, like not just a matter of wishful thinking, but actually true. Yeah. And so I recommitted my life to Christ in college. And it was through that experience, it made me think, how come I was never introduced to apologetics growing up? And that's what decided, or that's what caused me a, a, a real burden to learn apologetics and then go back into the church and equip the body of Christ to understand apologetics, to, to know it and you know use it. And eventually I ran across Standard Reason. And then, um, yeah, the, the rest is history. So I've been with Standard Reason uh, since 2004. And um, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a dream job because I get to do what I feel like I'm gifted in, which is teaching and knowledge. And I get to do the thing that I feel like is one of the most, is a very important thing that the church needs. And that is to be able to think carefully about their faith and to persuasively and graciously share their convictions with the rest of the world. I think that's so important. We see a lot of uh, high school students when they go off to university colleges that uh, unfortunately they were not very well grounded in their faith. They have professors who are a little bit intimidating or aggressive, right? attacking Christianity, and they um, slowly lose their faith. So I think it's probably a place where the church could certainly improve upon um, uh, reaching uh, and, and really just uh, studying the scriptures and see what they say. Talk to us a little bit about the hermeneutics. Well, that sounds like something I need to avoid like the plague. You know, it's like a disease. Hermeneutics. Yes. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what hermeneutics is and, and really what the practical application that would be uh, for, for, for us as Christians. Yeah, well, hermeneutics was actually a class I took in uh, seminary when I went. Uh, I originally was a physical therapist in terms of my career. And then when I uh, decided I wanted to pursue um, teaching apologetics, I went back to school, went to graduate school at, uh, at Talbot, Biola University, and studied Christian apologetics. One of the classes that was, uh, I think it was a required class, was hermeneutics. And at the time, I hadn't thought much about what it was or its significance, but it turned out that despite all of the apologetics classes that I had when I was in seminary, it was the hermeneutics class that was the single most important class that I took that changed the the, the course, the spiritual course, uh, spiritual trajectory of... of um, my life, my personal life with God. Yeah. And that's because hermeneutics is, is roughly, it's the, uh, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation. <laughs> and so what the class was that I was learning at seminary was how to, when you read the Bible, properly interpret what the Bible is saying so that you understand it and apply it correctly, you know, understand it correctly and apply it correctly. So um, when I, when I took this class, my eyes were open. I thought to myself, wow, I've been making so many mistakes when I read the Bible and jumping to all kinds of wild interpretations that have no basis in the Bible. And to me, I was like, wow, I love apologetics. Don't get me wrong. But to me, every believer ought to, at some point in their life, study hermeneutics, study how to interpret the Bible. And if I was to, um, you know, create a, like a, a, a Christianity 101 course that every believer takes. Like you join a church or you become a believer. The first course you take 
should be hermeneutics. And it doesn't have to be called that, but I would love it if every church taught every one of its church members how to interpret the Bible. And here's the reason why. Think about it. Every single believer is going to be reading the Bible, at least they should, right? Reading the Bible between now and the moment they die. And they're going to be basing their theology, major life decisions, uh, how they instruct others on what they think the Bible says. So how important is it that we all have a proper methodology of interpreting the Bible? Because if we're misinterpreting it, then we're we're, we're misunderstanding God's commands. We're getting our, our theology incorrect. And uh, so uh, that's why I say, it, it, to me, hermeneutics is, is one of those things that I wish every believer was sort of mandated, required to learn, because it's about the art of interpreting the Bible. And it's so foundational to our faith. Hmm. And uh, speak a little bit to the, the fact that a Western worldview, I mean, for us, a Western, it's all about me, Alan. But the biblical worldview, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's all about God. It's not about Ken or Alan. Yes, yes, yeah. So this was something, yeah, I, I learned this actually in the seminary class. And I, I really have to give credit to uh, Walt Russell, who who actually recently passed away. Um, but he was, a, he was a hermeneutics professor over at Talbot and just influenced so many people on on this. But he he often would talk about this idea of how our worldview affects uh, how we interpret the Bible, right? And so most of us, including myself, have grown up in a Western worldview, okay? And a Western worldview is typically ahistorical, meaning not historical. A, a Western worldview is typically has um, me or you in the center of it. So there's there's you in the center, yeah. and then there's everything else around you. There's your your career, your family, your... your um, your hobbies, your friends, your church, and all these things. And, and in this worldview, we, we go around life asking the question, what do all these things have to do with me? What do all these things do for me? So when it comes to our career, we ask, well, what career should I choose? What, which career satisfies me? Which career gives me the money I need to have a certain lifestyle? You know, We pick our friends based on the ones that make us feel good, that affirm us. Right, we go to the church that has the worship style that we like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the sermon style that we want, right? So everything about all of these things, like we're in the center, and all these things, we ask, how do these things meet our needs? How do they satisfy us? And so naturally, if that's our worldview, when it comes to reading the Bible, right? We pick up the Bible and we turn to a we turn to a passage, and we read it, and then we ask the same question. What does this verse have to do with me? That's the first question we ask. Now, I'm not saying that that's not an important question. Yes, of course, the Bible is relevant for us. No, no doubt about it. But for that question to be the first question we ask, what does this verse say about me or to me, or it is the wrong question. Because again, it's, it's presuming that every verse is specifically about you. Uh, but of course, if that's our worldview, you could see how that can lead to a lot of problems. And so we read verses in the Bible that might be directed to um, David or to, you know, to maybe a specific individual, right? Or to a certain people group like the Israelites. And if we're always asking, well, what does this verse say to me? We could in a, uh, incorrectly, mistakenly, interpret some of these commands or these promises 
that are made to someone else and somehow appropriate them for ourselves. And of course, this can lead to all kinds of problems. So that's that's the historical worldview. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the, I'm sorry, the Western worldview. Yeah. Now, contrast that with a biblical worldview, right? The biblical, the worldview of the biblical authors, meaning those people who are writing scripture, who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, what was their worldview? Well, it wasn't a Western a historical worldview rather it was a biblical historical worldview where and, and uh, you know I, I have this image in my mind of this graph that my professor used to teach me but basically that worldview starts with god and it shows how god is um working out his plan first through israel then the the modern church and then whatever future there is He's, he's working out his plan to uh, save mankind, to, to redeem mankind, and ultimately that's to bring glory back to himself. So the biblical worldview of the author, of, this, of the biblical authors, has God at the beginning and God at the end. It's all about God, right? Yeah. And you might say, well, where am I in that? Well, you're, you're not, right? <laughs> I mean, you're not principally in there, right? Because it's not about you. And now... Is there any relevance to us? Well, of course, because right now we're in that time period where God is working through the church to proclaim his message of reconciliation, okay? And so, yeah, we're a part of that church and we can pray and ask God to use us as he's as He's working out his plan. But it's, it's about God. It's about his plan. It's about how he might be using us. And ultimately, it's to bring glory to him. So if that's our worldview, when we turn to a biblical passage then we're far more likely to get the proper interpretation and understanding of what a verse means than if we had a Western, a historical worldview that just sees everything about us. And so that's just kind of one of the first principles of biblical interpretation is you need to jettison your current worldview of everything about you and try to adopt the worldview of the biblical authors whenever you're reading the Bible. Because otherwise, you're far more likely to get into trouble with misinterpreting a passage. Hmm. Yeah. No, you talk about uh, meaning and application. Um, you know, what, what was the author trying to get across in the beginning? And then what is the, what is the application uh, to, to me? Uh, That's right. Yeah. So um, this is an important distinction. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, Ken, about um, you know, people tend to ask, you know, they read a Bible verse and they ask, what does this verse mean to me? Um, that's basically an application question, which, as I said, it's an important question, but it shouldn't be the first question. The first question should be, what does this verse mean? And, and, and the best way to try to answer that is to figure out what did the verse mean to the recipients, right? So if you take an epistle of Paul and you're reading it, you want to first ask, okay, let's just say it's to the uh, Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians, okay? You're reading the book of Galatians, and um, you you read a verse, and you ask the question, well, what does this verse mean? Well, one way to try to figure that out is ask the question, how did the Galatians, the church in Galatia, understand what Paul meant? And, and, and once you understand what it meant for them, and therefore you'll understand what the verse means, then, and only then, should you ask the next question, how does that, if at all, apply to me? So again, the question about application is important, but it should not 
um, precede the question about meaning. First discover the meaning, then when you understand the meaning, then ask the question, how, if at all, does that verse apply to me? So that's that's the important distinction between those two, meaning and application. Yes, you speak about three things, context, history, and genre. Address those for us. There's three key questions you should always ask of any Bible verse. And uh, each of those questions is pertaining to a, a certain key idea. There's context, there's history, and genre. So context is simply, um, the question you want to ask about context is, what is the author talking about in the surrounding text, right? So if you read a Bible verse, you ask context. What was what, what were the verses before and after, you know? Mm -hmm. Because those verses before and after, whether it be just a few verses or a paragraph or the entire book, those verses will tell you what the general gist is of what the author's talking about. It'll tell you the context. And the reason that's important is because context determines meaning of a smaller unit of text. And so one of the examples I give is I say the word buck, you know, B-U-C-K. Now, if I was to ask you, what, is, what do I mean when I say the word buck? You'd probably have a lot of possible answers. It could be buck is a deer, buck is a, a dollar, right? Buck is uh, the name of a person or the verb to buck. Okay? You don't know what I'm referring to because you don't have any context. So if I add the words, I got a buck. Well, now you've ruled out someone's name. You've ruled out the verb to buck, but you still don't know, is it a dollar or a deer? But now if I say to you, well, while I was hunting, I got a buck and I brought it home in my truck. Well, now you know, based on the context that the word buck means deer, right? Now, imagine I change the context. I say, um, hey, do you want do you want that candy bar? I say to my kid, do you want that candy bar? I got a buck. I can buy it for you. Well, now you know the word buck means dollar or some sort of currency, right? So notice the same words, I got a buck, have a completely different meaning based on the context, right? You change the context, it changes the meaning of the word, right? So this is why it's so important that you know what the context is I would say it's more important than you know the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic that you're reading the Bible. Because you can look up a word in the Greek and the dictionary will tell you it could mean this, 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 or that. Okay. But unless you know the context, you don't know which of those possible options it actually is referring to in that sentence. The context determines the meaning. And so when you don't, when you read just a verse all by itself and don't read the context, now you don't know what the author is talking about. And by the way, that context was Holy Spirit inspired. <laughs> okay. So you're ignoring what the Holy Spirit inspired a human author to write. You're ignoring the Holy Spirit's context. So therefore, you, you might guess as to what the smaller verse means if you've ignored the context. And now you can get the wrong meaning, you know. Worse, and this is what often happens, um, when you ignore the context of a verse, you might allow your own current life situation to become the new context. Mm -hmm. And since context determines meaning, your own life situation will change the meaning of a Bible passage. I'll, I'll give you an example, Ken. Um, this, this happened um, a, a few years back, but there was a guy who um, was 
he, he was attracted to one of the worship leaders in the, in the church. And he was considering whether he should um, ask her out on a date. And so one day he's, you know, flipping through the Bible, looking for, you know, um, looking through some verses, hoping to find some sort of a guidance from God as to how we should proceed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember the passage. I, I have it written down somewhere, but he turns to a, a, a passage in the epistles and he reads it and he thinks, oh, I hear God now telling me what to do. And the verse said, grace be with you. And guess what the girl's name was? Grace. grace. Right. So notice what he did. He, he interpreted that as God telling him, yes, go ahead and ask her out on a date. But notice what's happened there. The words grace be with you, which I'm sure you can imagine Paul saying that numerous times in the epistles, mm -hmm. but grace be with you is a, is a certain passage, right? A certain sentence. It has context, but he's ignored the context. And when you ignore the context, you create a context vacuum. And that vacuum gets quickly sucks up, you know, your own situation, your own life situation. So he's in a situation where he's considering dating a girl. So now dating a girl, this, this girl named Grace becomes new context. And since context determines meaning, his own life context changed the meaning of the word grace from grace bestowed by God to a girl's name. And now you're twisting the words of God for your own purpose and baptizing them with sort of God's like, Hey, he, he's giving like divine approval yeah. of, of what you're thinking, which is horrible. Like you're literally putting words in God's mouth. So anyway, so that's context. Okay. I, so that's the first question you should ask. What's the author talking about in the surrounding text? The second question is about history. And the question you want to ask here is what's the historical occasion for why the author's writing? You know, why is he saying what he's saying? And that's because there could be some sort of a historical event, some sort of argument or debate, maybe a, a matter of geography was relevant for why the author's writing. And the more you can investigate the history behind some particular passage, the more you'll better understand what is being said. You know, so for, for if you're reading the book of Galatians, okay, well, Galatians, if you study the history, it's about Paul being angry that the church in Galatia is being seduced into buying into the uh, thinking of these people called the Judaizers, who are saying, hey, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to follow the law, namely circumcision. Yeah. And Paul's saying, that is no gospel. If you have to follow the Mosaic law, in addition to trusting the Christ, well, you're completely undermining the gospel. And that's why Paul is so angry at the beginning of Galatians. Okay. So you have to understand that's what the book of Galatians is about. That's the big picture. Now, as you read it, you'll have a better sense for why he wrote the things that he wrote. You know? So anyway, so history is another um, key point. And then the third part is genre. Okay. And genre is simply um, a literary style, meaning the Holy Spirit inspired human authors to write down scripture, but he inspired them to write them down in various genres like poetry or law or epistle or psalms or proverbs or whatever. And, and every genre has its own interpretive principles. In other words, you can't interpret every type of literature in exactly the same way. And so that's the third question to ask. What's the genre? And then once you determine it, you know, is it is it is it a proverb? Is it wisdom literature or what? then you can then proceed to applying the appropriate principles. 
And so if I was designing a course on how to interpret the Bible, I would include those three things, context, history, genre, and encourage everyone to ask uh, each, you know, a question about each of those before they try to approach the question of interpretation. You mentioned that uh, along the lines of Revelation, the Laodicean church. Could you use that as an example of, of what you just covered? Yeah, so in uh, so in Revelation, uh, it's the yeah, so it's the letter to Laodicea. It's a, a kind of a well-known passage where where um, Revelation is calling out the church in Laodicea and saying, "You are you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold." And um, and and it says, "I want you to be one or the other, but you're neither." So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, so um, pe people interpret that a certain way now. This goes back to the whole worldview question you asked me, Ken, uh, a while back, which is, you know, what's our worldview? Well, if you just adopt an American, Western, ahistorical worldview, you'll see the words, hey, you need to be hot or cold, not lukewarm. Hot or cold in our modern culture today, we associate with being passionate or being sort of, you know, dispassionate, right? Uh, and, you know, you know, and so... You know, hot is like you're on fire for God and cold is like you're an atheist kind of thing, you know. And so it sounds like what the Bible is saying there is, hey, either be on fire for God or don't even bother following it. Just be an atheist. Don't be don't be on the fence. Don't be lukewarm. And that's how we kind of interpret it, you know. And so because we have that interpretation, we think the application means something in particular related to that, which, is, of course, is incorrect. Right. But again, it's because we're starting with a. American Western worldview we're taking the way we think today but we got to put ourselves in the in the you know position of the, of the biblical author so first of all context you would want to read more than just you know hey uh because you're lukewarm either hot or cold i'm about to spit you out of my mouth you'd want to back up a little bit and read the whole thing okay uh and what you discover very quickly is that the context is jesus is you know castigating the, the believers in, in Laodicea, okay? So it's Jesus being critical of the Laodiceans, right? And so that, so re reading it in context, this helps because now you understand what's going on generally. Now, the second part is, remember, is history and ask, well, what's the historical occasion behind what's being said or why it's being written? And um, what you discover is that the city of Laodicea, and you could look this up in, in a Bible commentary, Actually, I've looked it up even on Wikipedia, and this information is here. But you can learn some interesting historical facts about Laodicea. Number one, that um, it was a very wealthy city. People wanted to live there. Um, they had a um, a lot of black sheep there that created black wool, this beautiful black glossy wool. They had um, a, 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 a an eye institute that helped treat um, eye problems. But here's the thing. Despite all these attractive things about Laodicea, it had a problem, and that's its water supply. It had a poor water supply. So what they had to do was they created aqueducts to pipe in hot water from Hierapolis, which was, I don't know, several miles away, and cold water from Colossae. And here's the problem. By the time that hot and cold water reached Laodicea, it was, guess what? Lukewarm. Now, hot water is useful for bathing, for cleaning, you know, cold water is useful for, you know, a cold, refreshing drink, if you will, or whatever, you know, so there's lots of practical 
uh, usefulness to hot and cold water, but lukewarm water, it's kind of like not as useful. And so when we then read, you know, Jesus saying, hey, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. You know, I wish you're one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So we see now that the reason Jesus uses these terms about hot, cold, and lukewarm is because historically, every Laodicean would have known immediately Jesus is making reference to the water supply, and now he's being critical of them because they're like the water supply, neither hot nor cold, just lukewarm, and that's not useful. You're, you're not being productive as I've called you to be kind of thing. So now we begin to realize, oh, this isn't just you know, Jesus using some interesting, you know, um, you know, uh, simile or metaphor, you know, like, oh, you're, you're like this and that. No, he's being very specific and they would have understood this completely well. And that's why if you can kind of put yourself in the role of a Laodicean, the recipients of the letter and ask, well, how would I understand this as a, as a Laodicean? Well, now it's very different, you know? So anyway, so this is a way that like this whole context history genre thing kind of um, impacts your interpretation. If you do a little bit of digging around and study, then you can better understand the passage. And I think it becomes far more um, relevant. In fact, I was just looking at the rest of the passage here. Jesus says, um, you say, in this passage to Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, if you didn't have all that background that we just talked about with Laodicea, you would just think that these things about being poor, blind, you know, putting on white clothes are just, you know, um, uh, sort of incidental uh, um, metaphors, right? But they all relate to exactly Laodicea, right? He, Jesus says, I'll give you white clothes to wear, because remember, they only had this black wool, right? He says, you think you're rich? I'll make you rich, right? Because they thought that they were wealthy because they were a very wealthy city, you know? You think you can see, but you're blind, right? You know, yeah. I'll give you salve to put on your eyes, right? You guys think you're special because you have this eye medicine, but I'm going to help you really see the truth. So, Jesus is literally picking at all of these very specific things that were real, real things that were happening in the city of Laodicea and addresses um, their spiritual condition um, related to uh, using those things as analogies, which is really cool. That's good. Maybe give us another passage where you could uh, apply those same principles to. So um, I think the one you're probably thinking of is the, is the Luke 19 passage where Jesus, um, I think, yeah, yeah. So uh, this one, um, let's see, it's Luke 19, uh, like 11 through 27. But um, that, well, that's the context. But the, the verse that people oftentimes cite, and they, they want to typically cite out of context, because it makes Jesus sound kind of scary, right? <laughs> Jesus says this. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, he says, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Yeah. Like, whoa. It's like, did Jesus wake <laughs> up on the wrong side of the bed? Like, why is Jesus so angry? Is he commanding his disciples or us to kind of like round, round up his enemies and bring them before him and, and kill them? And the answer is no. 
um, if you read the context, again, going back to context, you'll see that this is actually, yes, Jesus is saying those words, bring them here before me and kill them. But it's in the context of Jesus sharing a parable. So Jesus isn't actually commanding that. He's telling, it's a king in his parable story that is issuing that command, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to understand is when you read the context, you realize this is just a parable and it's only a character in the parable that issues that command, not Jesus, right? So that's the first thing. Um, uh, and then the second thing, of course, uh, we, we mentioned uh, that genre is an important element. Uh, and you wanna ask, well, what kind of literary style is being used here? And Jesus, of course, this is a gospel account. So gospel is a particular type of genre. But the subgenre here is parable, right? Jesus is sharing a parable. And whenever you read a parable, you, you can't interpret that in a literal sense because every parable is intended to make a point. And so whenever you read a parable um, from, from Jesus, you always want to ask the question, what's the point here? You know, in other words, don't take every little detail in the parable and try to find sort of some sort of analogous real-world situation. Just ask the general question, what's the general point, right? And so um, in this particular parable, um, Jesus is telling a story about Prince who goes off to become crowned king. And uh, some people who are, who are going to be part of his subjects don't want him to be king. And so when, the, when he comes back after he's been declared king, he finds out that these people were sort of, you know, collaborating against him. And he orders that all of them are rounded up and killed. Okay, so that's that's the whole parable. That's the whole parable. Now, what's interesting about this, and this goes to the history component of context history genre, is that this is actually a real world scenario. After King Herod died, his son, I think it was his son, yeah, went to, um, I think, Rome to be crowned king over Judea. And many of the people in Judea, the Jews, didn't want him to be king over them. And so when he came back, he, he actually issued an order to have these people rounded up and killed. So when Jesus makes this parable, he, he's actually connecting it to a real historical event that everybody would have understood, right? Um, now, you know, is there any application here to us? Well, absolutely, because there's another point about the, the minas, right? So, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, entrusts this uh, the, the mine, uh, I'm sorry, in the parable, the person leaves and trusts these minas to people to be good stewards of them. And when he comes back, he wants to see like how they've, whether they've been a good steward. And of course, this goes to the point of, hey, while our king is away, right? That Christ came, died, rose again, returned to heaven. He's going to come back. But in the meantime, he's left us to be good stewards of the resources, and the gifts that we have, right? So Jesus is making this point. And so again, um, all this becomes more evident when you read uh, the entire context, you ask what's the history behind it, and you try to figure out and understand the genre, you know, context history genre, and all that becomes apparent. In fact, um, there is an article I've written um, on our website, str.org, which is called something like, Did Jesus Command We Kill His Enemies? <laughs> and if you search for that, you'll see me kind of unpack all these points Um in that particular, um, in that article, kind of in a much more uh, logical, straightforward way than the way I've kind of communicated here. <laughs> 
but uh, I think it's helpful. It's it's helpful because it just shows the importance of context, history, genre. You know, asking those three questions to help you better understand a verse or a passage. Yeah, that's something I think we need to look at in every situation when we read the scriptures. You just can't open the Bible and is uh, your friend in the worship area. Oh, grace be with you or something. We, we need to, we right. need to dig a little bit deeper and have some foundation with that. I know you talk about a, a, a saying you have kind of hit me is, uh, is it coffee cup, coffee cup, Christianity or sayings yes. or what, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. Coffee cup Christianity. Yeah. That yeah. was also an article I wrote. So again, if you went to str.org and looked up coffee cup Christianity, this is all about the same issue we've been talking about so far, Ken, and that's the issue of context. And the reason I call it that is because oftentimes you'll, I don't have a coffee mug with me right now, but oftentimes <laughs> you have a, you get a coffee mug, especially from a Christian bookstore or something or a church, and it's got a verse on it. And because it's on a coffee cup, there isn't enough space to put the entire context, right? And so you'll have, you know, the Philippians passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And, um, the reason I call it coffee cup Christianity is because uh, it's it's a problem. It's it's our desire to have these short, pithy little verses that are stuck on a coffee cup or on a calendar or on a picture on our wall, whatever. But because they're out of context, we don't we we misinterpret what they mean, right? And if you think about it, and in fact, I've even made this mistake even as we've been talking. I refer to it as the, the book of Galatians as the book of Galatians or the book of Philippians. And we often use the term book to refer to the books of the Bible because, yeah, it's fine. But in reality, Galatians, Philippians are not books. They're epistles. And what is an epistle? It's a letter. And this isn't just some, you know, like, oh, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, pedantic for, you know, uh, there's a very important uh, implication for that, because think about this. Books are meant to be read uh, in chapters over long periods of time. Like you get a novel, you know, like, I don't know, I, I can't even think of a current novel because I don't read current you know, novels, but like Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter's books are these long books and kids love to read them, but nobody reads Harry Potter from start to finish in one sitting, right? Uh, or Lord of the Rings, right? They, they, these are long books that you read, you know, a couple chapters, you put it down, you come back and you might, it might take you a week or a month to read it. Okay. Cause that's how books are meant to be read. But letters are not that way. Whenever you get a letter, or I guess in today's culture, an email, you typically read the email from start to finish in one sitting. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have to realize the epistles are letters and they were, they were written as such, and they were meant to be read as such. Like, when an epistle was received from a, from Paul in a church, most likely, based on what we know, that letter was read out loud to the congregation in one in one sitting, right? Mm -hmm. Notice, you, today even, we never, you and I, and none of our friends, and even young people, if you were to get a three-page letter from, let's just say, your aunt, okay, Aunt May, mails you a, a letter on paper, okay? Let's say it's three pages. You would never open up the envelope, grab the three pages, skip page one, skip page two, turn to page three, scroll down to the third paragraph, and then just read one sentence on that letter, would you? No one would do that. You'd be like, why did you just do that? 
You're like, oh, I just wanted to read that one sentence on page three. Nobody does that. But when it comes to the Bible, for some reason, we have no problem opening it up in the middle of a letter, skipping page one, page two, page three, going to page four, coming out of chapter four or fourth paragraph and reading just one sentence. So it's crazy that we do that with the word of God, but we wouldn't do that with a letter from our aunt, you know? So anyway, so Coptic of Christianity is all about this. It's like, hey, why are we sticking little verses on our coffee cups, on our calendars, when in reality, those verses are meant to be a part of a, a larger conversation, not conversation, larger um, letter that someone's written, whether it's Paul or somebody else, some other biblical author. And to me, this is a problem because of all the problems I mentioned before. You read a verse by itself, you ignore its context. When you ignore its context, you create a context vacuum. When you create a context vacuum, you're you're you have the temptation to have your own life situation become the new context. And now you're importing your own thinking into a verse, twisting it to mean something it didn't ever say. And now you're putting words in God's mouth. And that's a that's a big problem. <laughs> so Coffee Cup Christianity is just meant to that, that article is just meant to highlight this concern. And, and bring awareness to people about the importance of context, history, genre, specifically context in that article. Well, let's, let's kind of move forward a little bit here, Alan. Uh, sure. As I look around and, you know, I'm 64 and I, I see the history of the, what would be the evangelical church and how I think they're just, um, you know, when you start beginning to not take the Bible for what it says, some of what we would call the foundational truths, uh, scriptures, when you begin to kick those out and take culture in, what culture is saying on certain issues, uh, whether it be the virgin birth, uh, the resurrection, uh, marriage, um, all of these different issues uh, in the church continually it's like they have a blind eye to the scriptures or they want to be accepted in today's culture. And mm -hmm. I, I get that. I understand that. You know, nobody wants to go out and automatically make somebody mad and create an enemy. And sometimes sure. we've, we've done that on some of these issues. I think we may sure. have hurt ourselves. Uh, but uh, maybe speak to that. I think about the authority of the scriptures and, and where you see it is the different places you've spoken all over the world about when you see these mainline denominations that mm -hmm. have stood for the faith. Uh, now, I, I say sometimes I don't know why they keep the word church in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That Well, this is, and this is a problem that has, the church has faced from its inception. So it's nothing new. But the challenge has always been that because we, as a church, live in, in culture, um, we are surrounded by culture and we're tempted to be um, influenced by what the culture says, you know, and as you said, you, you don't want to be labeled a bigot or homophobic or Islamophobic or what, you know, all these terms. And so you want, this is a temptation constantly to capitulate to cultural thinking. Yeah, it does. And uh, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like this is a major problem and I find that it's, you know, I understand the temptation, but the key is, and this is why, you know, one of the main missions uh, or mission elements of Stand to Reason, the organization I work for and what we do, is we're trying to train Christians to know the truth, the truth of scripture, and not compromise it. And to us, it's like, 
you know, we're not primarily an evangelistic organization, although clearly our teaching and our impact does have an effect on evangelism. Sure. But we're primarily a, I mean, for lack of a better word, a discipleship organization, not that we disciple people in the, in the traditional sense, but what we're trying to do is, is help Christians become better ambassadors for Jesus. An ambassador needs to be skilled in knowledge, wisdom, and character. Uh, and knowledge is, of course, knowing the truth about God's message and not compromising that message. And it's so tempting for Christians today to want to compromise on the truth of Scripture. And I think one of the reasons why that often happens, besides what you mentioned, which is already the temptation to want to be accepted. But another reason, I think, is because we're not grounded in Scripture. I, I don't. I generally don't find that most believers that I'm encountering and talking to are grounded in what scripture teaches and so consequently when you don't when you're not immersed in the truth and know what the word of god says you're far more likely to become influenced by what the culture says and the culture is very good at saying hey what you you believe this as a christian well no no no, you don't have to you can be a christian and still believe this you know and here we'll give you a new interpretive approach to understanding that, you know, so for example, the 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 main one of the most common examples of this today is in the area of sexuality, specifically the um, the rise of homosexuality and transgenderism and all the LGBT stuff that's going on. Like that's become a huge thing in our culture over the last couple of decades, obviously. And so there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, obviously they're, if they're not Christian, they're saying you Christians are are out to lunch on this issue, but they're also pressuring Christians who are remaining Christian to in, to reinterpret the biblical passages in a way that maybe they can try to make the Bible say that being gay is okay, that homosexual behavior is okay. And so now there's entire organizations that are going around the country and training Christians to reinterpret the biblical passages that speak to sex and marriage and homosexuality and reinterpret them in a way to make them sound what they call gay affirming. I mean, it's basically they're, they're trying to make the church teach pro-gay theology. And so this is an example because, you know, first of all, all of us probably have, I mean, some friend, family member, coworker, or classmate that identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, non-binary, transgender, or whatever. So we have these relationships and now we're being told, unless you affirm everything about them, you're homophobic, bigoted, transphobic, whatever it might be. And so, of course, we don't want to be called that. So we're tempted to want to maybe compromise. And then someone comes along and says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm gay, and I've discovered a new interpretation of this Bible verse. And now you're like, oh, well, tell me about that. Okay, well, let me tell you about how this Bible verse has been misinterpreted for thousands of years. And this new interpretation allows you to remain as a Christian, but now affirm homosexual behavior as morally permissible. And so, of course, thousands of Christians are tempted to buy into that. But because they're not grounded and because they don't know hermeneutics, they're far more likely to, to follow that. And that's why I say um, hermeneutics is so important, you know, how to interpret the Bible. And just the importance of the church systematically training believers to know the message of God's word, uh, to be immersed in it, to know the truth, so that when they see a counterfeit, they can recognize it, you know, and not succumb to it, not be duped by it. 
but unfortunately that's that's not happening all the time and people are being duped yeah it's gone so far that you know we're actually in several denominations they're ordaining them and they are ministers of the gospel of of their gospel uh, yes. sharing that message with other people who um you know are just being led astray yeah well let's let's talk a little bit let's just talk uh drill down a little bit deeper about human sexuality you know in the beginning scripture affirms that you know god created man and a woman kind of just take us off from right there yeah well this is yeah in the beginning right so you got genesis the the creation account where god makes everything right he makes the universe he makes makes the planets that he makes humanity and then he gives us a blueprint for how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to function, what sexuality and sex and marriage should look like, right? And so he he makes humanity as male and female. He creates them in his image. So we see this clear indication that God makes only two sexes, male and female. And then later on, we see when um, it talks about what our sexual activity should look like and, and marriage should look like, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, so, so God creates humanity in this Genesis account, this blueprint model of male, female, they come together to create a one flesh union. Okay. Now, to me, that's that we have a very powerful explanation of what sex and marriage should look like. Some people, including Christians, but mostly non-Christians, uh, but but unfortunately, a lot of Christians as well, people who call themselves progressive Christians will often say, but, you know, that's that's just the Old Testament. You know, that's not relevant anymore. We're in the New Testament era. And now I don't I don't agree that it's appropriate to dismiss Genesis, but let's just grant for the sake of argument. Let's just let's just grant their premise that we shouldn't look to the Old Testament. OK. Turns out that even in the New Testament, this is re-expressed. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 19, I think verses four through six, um, Jesus, when he's being asked a question about the nature of divorce and marriage, he quotes Genesis one and two, that those two verses where uh, God creates humanity, male and female, and says the two shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes those verses, you know, he says, have you not read? So he's reminding these people, haven't you read in Genesis? It says this, that God created the male and female, says for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and his father, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus literally quotes the Genesis account of creation because he believes it's still authoritative, it's still relevant, it's still binding. And then, actually, if you continue reading, Jesus adds his own commentary to those uh, verses. He says, um, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus further elaborates to say, this is a God-ordained institution. This man and woman coming together is a God-ordained institution. So I like to summarize Jesus's view by saying this, according to Jesus, when it comes to sex and marriage, it's about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And that's kind of an easy way to remember it. You know, one, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. According to Jesus, that's what sex and marriage is about. 
So this is a New Testament thing. It's a Jesus thing. And I think that's significant because a lot of people tend to want to latch on to what Jesus says because in their mind, they're like, well, the Old Testament is like this harsh, cruel God. You know, so I'm not going to listen to the Old Testament. I'm not going to listen to Christians because they're bigots. I'm not going to listen to the church. Uh, what does Jesus say? Okay, you really want to know what Jesus says? Matthew 19, 46. It's about one man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. Now, what's interesting about that is we've said nothing on this show, at least, anything about any verses prohibiting homosexual sex or transgenderism, right? However, even apart from the verses that address those things, just the Bible's teaching, just Jesus's teaching on sex and marriage alone rules out the possibility that homosexual sex is an option. Because remember, if you want to know what Jesus's teaching is on sex and marriage, it's about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. Homosexual sex is not possible in that view. So to me, it's very, very powerful that if you haven't, even if we didn't have the verses that people typically refer to that prohibit homosexual behavior, you have from the lips of Jesus, a very positive case for what sex and marriage and sexuality should look like. And it rules out by definition, homosexual behavior. Yeah. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. You know, he, yes. he spoke, he spoke the truth and love to these people. He didn't try to, um, uh, twist God's word or change God's word, you know, he was truthful in his speaking. He was loving. And I think maybe sometimes when we're dealing with people that are homosexuals or lesbian or all of the other things, we get kind of riled up maybe sometimes and angry and, you know, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know, I think they just remember, you know, uh, he hates me because I'm, this is my lifestyle or something. Right. Now, let, let's move on here to uh, another topic here is. Okay. How? How in the world, Alan? How can a loving God sentence someone to an eternal hell? Yeah, that, well, that, that is a tough question because it's, it's, a, it's rhetorically powerful. It's, a, it's an emotionally charged kind of question. Yeah. But the reality, I think, is, is that... Um, uh, to me, the, actually, the, the better question is, is how can a just God allow wicked and evil people into heaven? The question isn't why would a, a good God who's loving send someone to hell? It's why would a just God send anyone to, to heaven? And the reason I ask it that way is because the reality is, if God didn't, if God didn't send people to hell, he would not be loving. And the reason I say that is because a just God who is good should punish wickedness, right? I mean, for example, imagine uh, some crazy man finds your spouse, you know, and murders your spouse. Okay, so I'll just I'll just take myself. Okay, so someone finds my wife and and brutally kills, you know, brutally attacks her and kills her, and they catch this guy and they bring him before a, before a judge, and the judge says, you know what? I'm I'm kind of a loving person, so I'm going to let this person go. Like, that's not loving. I mean, that that's letting evil go unpunished. That would not be a loving judge. That would not be a just judge. That would be an unjust, unloving judge, right? The loving thing to do is to punish wickedness. 
to put to punish evil. And so the right thing to do is put that guy in prison. And so that's why in the same way for God to not punish evil would be an unjust, unloving thing to do. So instead, what does he do? He he is just and he is loving and he promises to not only punish evil, but destroy it. And so he's going to send a number of people who are evil and who do not get a pardon from him. He's going to send them to, an, to a prison and it's an eternal prison, but it's a prison nonetheless, right? And that's what that's what's called hell, right? Or the lake of fire. So um, to me, it the the real puzzling question isn't so much why would a loving God send someone to hell? It's why would a just God allow someone who's evil into heaven? And the answer is, is because, first of all, he loves his creation, right? He made us, so he loves us. So he doesn't want us to be punished. So what does he do? He tries to make a way, he makes a way for us to be pardoned for the crimes we've committed. And of course, that's through Jesus. And so if we put our trust in Christ, then all of our wrongdoing is wiped out and the righteousness of Christ, his goodness is given to us. It's imputed to us. And so now we have a chance to be pardoned for the crimes that we deserve to be punished for, but we're not, we're, we're, we're put into heaven. We're, we're put into a uh, eternal existence in a relationship with our creator. If we, if we receive that pardon. So to me, that's, that's the more amazing question. Um, why would a good God, why would a just God allow wicked people into heaven? Well, it's only through his grace and only if we receive that grace through, through Christ, which is the gospel. Um, but for, for God not to punish evildoers would, would be, that would be unloving. That would be unjust. Yeah. Good answer. What about people who say, you know, we, we, we live in a scientific world now, Alan, and, these stories about, you know, a donkey talking and, and uh, some preacher getting caught up in a, a sea creature and the sun standing still, that doesn't happen. How, how can we rely upon the, the word of God when we see stories like that? Mm. Well, that, yeah, that is a good, that is a challenging question because in a lot of these examples, there's no, there's no way to sort of independently um get data on that like for example you know jonah and the great fish like i don't know how you could have evidence of that because it happened there's an event that fish is dead jonah's dead you know there's no like dna evidence you could pull up so it is hard to to show that's the case now that's not all of them like not all miracles are uh not verifiable um some i would argue are in fact i think the resurrection of jesus does have ways that we can actually evaluate. But but for these other ones that are like the sun stood still and, you know, Jonah and the great fish, um, it, it doesn't trouble me. And here's the reason why. If you, if there is an actual God, okay, if there's a God who has the power, the capacity to make the stars, to make the planets, to make the the laws of gravity and to create the laws of logic to literally create all of space and time and matter out of nothing. If he's got the power to do that for him to have a man survive in a fish or to stop the sun in the sky for a day or what, like or an hour, like this is like 
super, super easy for a God who can create all space-time matter out of nothing. Yes. Now, I'm not, some people have accused me of saying, well, Alan, so you're just basically, you know, punting to this sort of like, you have no, no answer. But the reality is, no, I think it, I think it logically makes sense. If there's a God who can do these things, then, then doing, you know, create the universe out of nothing, then he can certainly do these smaller things. So then the question becomes, well, do we have any evidence that God exists, that the God of the Bible is a real God? Well, I think we do have evidence for that. I think we do have reasons. So in other words, the way I'd go about, you know, someone were to ask me, well, what evidence do you have that Jonah survived in, in, a, in the belly of a fish? Let's say it was a skeptic or an atheist asking me that. I wouldn't turn directly to the arguments for, for Jonah and the fish. What I'd do is I'd say, well, I'd first ask him this. If you could be shown that there is a God who's powerful enough to create the universe out of nothing, wouldn't it then make sense that he also has the power to do these other things that are much lesser? And if he says yes, then I'd go about maybe trying to show him some reasons why God exists, you know? So that's the way I go about addressing some of those um, miracles that don't have any way, you know, like uh, Balaam's donkey, you know, <laughs> you know donkey's, there's no way you couldn't even get data on that because it just, it happened in a moment and it ended, you know? So how you, it's not, you can go back and verify that, but if there's a God who can make donkeys in the first place out of nothing, then making a donkey talk is no big deal, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's kind of how I approach that question, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said that, you know, God can speak to a, through a preacher. He, he can speak through a donkey real easy. <laughs> That's right. And, That's right. And, yeah, sure. And even Jesus reaffirmed the, the story of Jonah in the Gospels. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Jesus does attest to a lot of the miraculous events. So, but then, you, I mean, someone might still say, well, but why should I trust Jesus? You know, and so now you'd have to have, you know, back out. But as I said, actually, I don't think all miraculous um events are unverifiable i actually think the resurrection has a lot of historical evidence that we can that that we have data for to evaluate and so uh like gary habermas and michael lacona are two scholars who've written a lot about this they have a they have some a couple of books i think on his on the historical um evidence for the resurrection of jesus and i think their their arguments are very powerful and they're based on a lot of um, evidence that even non-Christian scholars accept. So, um, so what's interesting is that the the resurrection, to me, of all the miracles in the Bible, is the most important of all the miracles. Like, even if Balaam's donkey didn't actually say anything, well, that's I mean that's not significant. But the resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal event in space-time history, and yet that's the one that's the one miracle that we actually have evidence for. That we have data for, so that's pretty. That's pretty cool, I think. Yeah, I was I was actually texting Gary earlier today. I'm trying to schedule him to come on the program. Oh yeah, yeah, Gary's Gary's incredible. I've I've learned so much from Gary Habermas. Hmm. Uh, what would you say about these people that are trying to change God's pronouns, Alan? <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah. So the whole pronoun thing today is just. Um, this is this is definitely a new thing. This whole gender ideology that someone could be um, born in a body that's different than their gender, than their you know who they are, kind of thing. And so now they're trying to say, well, even God is um, you know 
you know, his, his pronouns are not he, him, but rather they should be they, them, you know? And so my general response is this, and by the way, I have a whole article on this. If somebody wanted to go to our website, str.org, I have a um, article, called, I think it's called God's Preferred Pronouns. Um, and I kind of unpack a whole bunch of thoughts about this, but number one, well, what's, I know I, I, I wouldn't even make these articles if there wasn't people who are persistently trying to make this case. Okay. But basically my first response would be this, the whole idea to claim that God has, they, them preferred pronouns is anachronistic. And by that, I mean, it's, um, it's something that doesn't fit the time period in which, um, the Bible was written. Okay. So, uh, this whole idea of gender ideology and preferred pronouns is a modern 21st century invention. And for, for someone to take that ideology and impose it on a 2000 year old or 2000 year plus old text is to impose an ideology on something that doesn't belong there. Right. So in one sense, I would just say the whole enterprise is just, is, is mistaken from the get go because it's anachronistic. You're, you know, talking about something that, you know, you're, you're trying to impose your ideology on something that doesn't uh, accept that ideology. But then second of all, um, God seems to reveal his pronouns, you know, very clearly in his own word. So the Bible is the word of God. And God in that re constantly refers to himself in the singular masculine, you know, he, him. Uh, we see this all throughout scripture. And then I would add when God becomes incarnate when he uh when the second person of the trinity uh becomes becomes man takes on the nature of humanity in the person of jesus jesus himself who is fully god fully man is also singular masculine in his gender if you want to use that term right so he's he's a male he's he him and then even when jesus refers to the father he refers to him as our father singular masculine right so all the data in scripture we see is that god is he him there's no they them you know people like well god is not you know god is not sexed you know which is true god the father is clearly not male or female i get that but he chose to self-disclose himself as as he him right so if you really want to go down this whole road of gender ideology which again i think it's anachronistic so not legitimate in the first place. But if you really wanted to go down that road, well, God's already made himself clear on that. Sometimes people will point to um, some of the more feminine characteristics. I think there's a passage in the Old Testament where God says, I'm like a, a hen who's, you know, protects my, 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 uh, the chicks or whatever, something like that. I can't remember what it is. But I remember when I read that passage, it says he's like a hen. He's not... It, so it's a simile, you know, it's not a, um, it's not like he is a hen, right? It's, so it's just saying he's, he's like a hen in, in that he's protective in that sense. So even in those cases where some of the feminine characteristics are associated with God, it's used as a, oh, it's, he's like this, or he's like that, not that he is that or is, is something else. So anyways, all that being said, um, I think, again, gender ideology applied to the, to the Bible is anachronistic. But despite that, God has revealed his pronouns as he, as he, him, very clearly. And so is Jesus. So all the data points in that direction. Well, Alan, uh, thanks for your time. 
Tell us a little bit about, I know you have a, a podcast, it's called Thinking Out Loud. If some of the viewers wanted to reach out uh, to you, how, how would they, tell us how, how people can find you, the podcast, the articles you've written. Uh, I think um, the most obvious uh, and probably most beneficial resource is our website. We have literally hundreds and thousands of articles, podcasts, videos uh, on our website, str.org. We have um we have STRU, which is Stand to Reason University, which is these free courses you can take on our website on homosexuality, on relativism, on science of the Bible, on all kinds of topics. And they're free. They're short video courses with questions and um, like tests that you can take to, the, to kind of learn the material. So just our website alone is, I would say, so, so helpful. And at the top right section of the website, there's a subscribe button. And you can subscribe to our kind of premier training article that my boss, Greg Kokel writes. It's called Solid Ground. It comes out six times a year. And then also on that subscribe section, you can subscribe to my personal uh, training article. Uh, and there's a checkbox there if you wanted to check that and subscribe to that. And then also you mentioned, Ken, uh, my podcast. So I have a podcast called Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. So it has to be all those, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. And uh, you can see it on or listen to it from Spotify or iTunes, or you can, I mean, any podcast app will pull it, or you can go to our website under podcasts and you'll see all the different podcasts that we have and mine's there as well. Thinking out loud with Alan Schleeman. And in it, I cover issues like God's preferred pronouns and transgenderism and gender ideology. And uh, I talk about hermeneutics. I talk about all these things. So um, all the stuff we've talked about here and more, I address in that. And and my podcast episodes are short. Most of them are all under 10 minutes. So I'm in, I'm out rather quickly and just kind of give you some short nuggets of material for you to understand or to be able to use in conversations with other people. I like that. Uh, yeah. Very easily to digest and to, you know, take in. Well, Alan, uh, thanks for your time, man. I sure appreciate it. Uh, Appreciate you coming on the, the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to do that.